did you start thinking about racism as a religion? When I made the nine areas of activity, when I listed those in, in the seventh area was religion, and then naturally I had to get into defining what religion is, strong belief backed up by action, and just by that process, stumbled into it. Because then I had to ask myself, okay, well, what is the strongest religion? What's the most prominent religion on the planet? If you go by that definition, strong belief backed up by action that may or may not have a God at at its head, in which case the religion of the white supremacists is white supremacy and the God of that religion of the white supremacists themselves according to the evidence. So that's how I came into it. It just evolved just by me seeking to follow the logic. Compensatory logic, I mean, you know, just, you know, that's that's how you, you raise the question. See, it starts with a question. Everything starts with a question. What is a religion? Okay, there are many, many religions throughout the planet. Now, of all the religions, what is the strongest one? And that's what I came up with. So I decided to put it in capital letters, the religion of white supremacy. And there's a statement, you know, with several elements, I think. The question is raised, how did that evolve in my mind? And uh, also there was a, a white man, I think he's from Alabama, back in the 1960s. And he said, People are just ought to stop, you know, having you know, all these arguments and falling out about this thing about race. He said it ain't nothing really complicated about it. People are just stop getting all emotional about it and just be uh, sensible. And then he followed that up with a statement that that kind of I think it kind of influenced me going in the direction of that religion thing. He said it works like this. Say God made the white man to serve God. And then he made the nigger to serve the white man. Now, if everybody just leave that alone, everything will work out fine. That's God's will. God made the white man to serve God. And then he made the nigger to serve the white man. Now, what's the problem? And so I thought about that. And then I said, yeah, but there's a flaw there. Because if God made the white man to serve God and then made niggas, meaning me, to serve the white man, why do white people in general have to be so deceptive in what they do? Why do they have to do things that are not necessary to do? And so a question is raised, and, and harmful things. Why do they have to do all of that if they're serving God? I mean, what kind of God would set up something like that? See, it's not logical when at the same time they say God is good. Well, why would God assign people to act the way that white people act? See what I mean? And then have them boss black people. And have, you know black people doing some of the things that are very, very, that they themselves, the white people say, are very ungodly, according to them, whomever God is. So it didn't make sense. 
So it sounded like, hey, that's just a statement to cover what people want to do anyway on their own and saying that God set it up, you know. Now, it could be, but it does bring things into doubt. And so I, I chose to go the doubt route based on the racist will lie. If you got an assignment by God, you don't have to lie about nothing. You just tell people straight up, hey, I'm just carrying out God's will, you know. I ain't going to lie to you about nothing. But the white supremacists lie. They say things that are not true all the time. Very deceptive. So that gave me reason to believe. No, no. They have invented a religion. And they don't call it that in general conversation. But that's what it is. The cows, spirit of Pamela Evans Harris, with us today, was thinking about her repeatedly, the late Pamela Evans Harris. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the religion of white supremacy. Almost... Ooh, thank goodness, thank goodness. Unmuted. That could have been catastrophic. Alrighty, do it correctly. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast. Pamela Evans Harris on my mind quite a bit today this week. Be late. Pamela Evans Harris still with us. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast. Hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date the ides of march tuesday march 15 2022 so i have been told now there are two key words for today's broadcast but i mean there is no way in the world we could do a broadcast that is focused on the great state of south carolina and not have me mention one of our all-time favorite people to study and books to read, biographies, Pitchfork, Ben Tillman, one of the greatest lines in the history of white supremacy. If you scratch the white man too deep, Tillman warned, you will find the same savage whose ancestry used to roam wild in Britain former South Carolina governor Ben Tillman they still can't get his statue down even after all this and his other quote that I love the threat of Negro domination hangs over us like the sword of Damocles ah two of my favorite quotes all time in the system of white supremacy racism the governor Ben Tillman but oh and I also had to make sure I'm South Carolina and man for today's broadcast Reverend State Senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney the mother Emmanuel Nine Dylan Storm Roof seven years since all of that very much on my mind in reading the 
for today's broadcast. Dylan Stormroof repeatedly, but all of that is important. The two key words for today's broadcast, Strom Thurmond. And in fact, I picked those as the key words when I had read about five pages of this book. Key word before I'd even got to his name in the book, which does come up repeatedly, but woo. Strom Thurmond. Our broadcast for today. One of our investors heard our guest talking about his new book, The Bible Told Them So. How Southern Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy and said, ooh wee, Gus, you should see if you can get this here, fella, on the broadcast. It would be a hoot to uh, chat it up. I said, let's see if we can do that. He was willing to come and hang out. The book is pretty new. So this is uh, reading is more important than watching television. And I mean, wow, with all the books we've been on the air for 13 years. I'll put it this way. I had a picture on my bookshelf of about 150 books. There weren't even five that had white supremacy in the title. This book does have white supremacy in the title, which, hmm, eyebrow from Gus T. A hoot to have the author with us live. Our guest for the program, Professor J. Russell Hawkins. Dr. Hawkins, are you with us, sir? I'm with you, Gus. Good to be with you tonight. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening with us. Uh, for folks, this might be their first time hearing about you and your book, The Bible Told Them So. Uh, anything briefly you'd like to give as an introduction about who you are, the work that you do? Sure, thanks. Uh, I am a professor of Shannon's and History in the John Wesley Honors College up at uh, Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. Um, I, uh, I teach classes that have to do with the intersection of race and religion in American history, and uh, this, this book that we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, a book that just came out this past May and uh, was kind of the culmination of over a decade's worth of work in, uh, in trying to tell the story of the way that white evangelicals in the civil rights movement were uh, complicit in trying to, um, to support um, white supremacy uh, in the name of uh, defending their God. Right on, right on. For people who have not seen you or read the book, you are a white man, is that correct? That's correct. For this broadcast, uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy. I use those terms as synonyms. Uh, I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use as uh, the definition I use for both terms is as follows: a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white do you think such a system exists do you think that definition is accurate i would agree with that with that definition um with maybe one extension and that is uh the the white supremacy as you have just defined it i think is in service 
for maintaining those who classify themselves as white on top of the, the pyramid of, of, of power as it is uh, dispersed throughout the land. So that it is seeing um, those who call themselves white um, as superior and therefore justified in holding on to the levers and resources of power, um, however, they're, however they're distributed. Hmm. Okay. Guess you're. That's kind of a a, a sly plug for the book because there's quite a bit of that. This is kind of uh, <laughs> divinely ordained that all of this is so uh, in the system of white supremacy throughout the known universe, wherever we might find land. That's how it's supposed to be, and the Bible told us so. Um. Hmm. This is a little bit difficult. I'll go ahead and do it now. So this will be fun, uh, at least for me. Okay. Uh, we have been on the air for 13 years, and that's still a failure because we've been really cool. We would have solved this problem and there would be no more white supremacy. So we've been kind of lame for that 13 years. But at least we can stand by our work. So what have you done for 13 years? Uh, this is just 80 seconds. You hear my question and the response. Who was I talking to in this here segment? You get one guest, uh, Dr. Hawkins. Who was I talking to in this here segment? Uh, I have concluded that Christianity has been used as a means of enforcing racism, white supremacy on non-white people, and especially encouraging non-white people to look at their suffering as redemptive, uh, to turn the other cheek, to uh, just look at this as, you know, this is your tough human struggle until you get with Jesus in the hereafter, white Jesus in the hereafter, yeah. uh, and has been a means of keeping non-white people uh, obedient servants to racism, white supremacy. Um, do you think non-white people should keep in mind violence might have to be an option for correcting this problem? As um, crazy as it sounds, uh, yes, I do. I tell uh, any of my white brothers and sisters that we have no right to say uh, you need to be authentic Christians and be nonviolent. You need to accept your suffering and realize that this is Christ working with you. If we really believe that, then as whites, we need to accept the suffering. We need to be on the short end of the stick. We need to give up the power. Until we're willing to do that, then... We have no right to tell any other group of people how to practice their life or their faith. One guess, Dr. Hawkins, who was Gusty speaking with way back in 2010? Oh, my goodness. I, that, that's tough. I, I don't know. I don't recognize that voice. Okay. Okay. We'll take that one. Let's see. So <laughs> if I were to tell you... That was Michael O. Emerson. You would say, uh, "Oh my goodness, I should have, I should have recognized that voice." Mm -hmm. Don't, don't tell Michael I didn't. Recognize <laughs> so, for our listeners who might be like, "What in the world?" Because we might have some folks in 2010. Yikes! I haven't even listened back far. At least for them, who is Michael O. Emerson, and why should you have known who that was? Michael Emerson is a mentor and friend of mine. Um, Michael uh, was a pretty typical person uh, in, in my in my study. Uh, I did PhD work at Rice University, and uh, 
I went to Rice in part because uh, Michael was on the faculty there. He, uh, person who has uh, devoted his his uh, his life um, and his research to investigating race has been um, uh, a divisive issue within American Christianity and has actually kept American Christians and different races apart. Um, uh, through the the way that they read the Bible and the way that they interpret uh, what the what the meaning of the scripture is, uh, and so Michael is is uh, is someone who's had a profound influence in my life. His uh, his methodology, uh, his his perspectives on things, um, factors heavily into some of my analysis in the book. And uh, most embarrassing of all, perhaps, is that his, his name was on the back, so he 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 blurbed the book. And uh, we're actually going to be hanging out next week. He's coming to campus uh, to give a talk uh, on some some research he's been doing. So, my goodness, I'm mortified that I didn't recognize his voice. Hopefully, he's not listening tonight. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, 2010, <laughs> you all can go back in the archives. He was with us for the Fulco program. And I have quoted him repeatedly when we've had white people come on this broadcast and had the audacity to get uppity about counter violence hey 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 we have had white theologians come here and say hey if we're unless we get serious about solving this problem yes counter violence should be an option anything goes mm. Mm. anywho michael o emerson aside 13 years that's how you brag you just stand by your work <laughs> 13 years <laughs> Let's see. Uh, hopefully, Gus T. won't have an opportunity to say that twice on this program. You should have known. <laughs> we'll have to keep that one in mind as well. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, one more, and then we'll be hopping straight to the book, trying to cover as much detail as or I guess two quick ones. So one, uh, as a white man in a system of white supremacy racism, do you think it's logical for any non-white person in the known universe to be suspicious of any individual classified as white, even yourself? Uh, certainly think it's, it's understandable and justifiable. Um, I, I would say so. Um, I think there is, is, is reason to be suspicious of, of those who classify themselves as white, given the extensive racialized nature of our society. Um, and, um, I think I'd be willing to, to ask to be proven um, my suspicions uh, be proven otherwise uh, going into to a, to a conversation or a relationship both yeah right on uh, the other one before we get to the book uh, we've asked a number of white guests over the years uh, this article wasn't out when Mr. Emerson was a guest with us but a non-white author wrote a report talking about racism white supremacy and he wrote that white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism but rarely are they pained enough and I've been asking our white guests over the years uh, just based on you as a white person the white people that you're around you study white people in the work that you do do you think that a substantial population of individuals classified as white are greatly and sincerely pained by racism 
no, I don't. I don't think they are. I think. I think uh, the critical mass of those classified to be race, uh, those classified to be white in the United States, are more pained by the accusation of being racist than they are with the idea of racism itself. Um, and I think the extent to which you're you're uh, as a white person able to turn off uh, your awareness of racism um, to to check out to to be blind to it uh, speaks to the extent to which uh, a critical mass of, of white people in this country are are not sufficiently pained by the problem of racism. Um, shoot, guess I go far enough to say I, I don't think that that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's there's enough white people in the country who, under, who even understand um, what racism is, who think of it in terms of of personal feelings uh, rather than than a uh, misallocation of power, uh, which is I think a, a more helpful way to begin to think about it if we're going to to, to get um, any progress made on addressing the problem of racism. Ooh, kind of snuck someone's question uh, there about white people being informed or not about racism, white supremacy and how it works. Maybe uh, maybe they'll get a chance to return to that one later to get more detail. Um, all right. I'm going to go to the book, although I did skip over one question. I'll come back to it. That has nothing really to do with the text. Uh, so one question uh, before I get into some of the details is kind of so much of this is about language and religion, obviously, but language. Uh, I was curious, there's a title shift. When I looked at your page, your university faculty page, the title for the book is The Bible Told Them So, The Southern White Christians Fight Against Racial Equality. The title for the book that I have in my hands is The Bible Told Them So, How Southern Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy. Now, for someone like me who pays attention to words, that is a <laughs> substantial change. What in the world, Professor Hawkins? <laughs> yeah. yeah, very, very, very keen eye there, Gus. Um, yeah, so earlier drafts of, of, of this book, um, in terms of working through the titles and, and, and going back and forth with the press, um, uh, different titles took on different meanings at different times, and uh, and so ultimately where we landed with this with this title was to to say exactly what we're talking about here, and and ultimately the story that I'm trying to tell in this book is a story of uh, Southern white evangelical Christians uh, during the the years of the transformation that happens in American society, trying to maintain their the place of power and authority over uh, and against those who they call black. And so um, I ultimately landed a place uh, and with the press's blessing um, came to a title that, that, that named this process what it was, which is this, this idea of white supremacy. And so the struggle that uh, the, the fight that I'm trying to, to chronicle here in this book is the fight that white evangelicals were actively engaged in over um, many decades to maintain their position on the top of the hierarchy in Southern society. And we're talking about then ultimately a, a fight to preserve white supremacy. And, and that's, that's what we see um, as we go back and look at the historical record and look at their actions and look at their, their feelings about this. So um, those earlier uh, draft titles uh, ultimately kind of give way to, to what it is exactly that we're talking about here. 
And let's be let's be direct and and clear, and let's call it what it is. It was white supremacy. Mm, makes sense. That is a major part of the problem. Put and I would say consistently, white people pussyfooting, lying, obfuscating about all of this fought to preserve white supremacy is substantially more accurate to what this book is about than fight against racial equality like make it and as I said like literally to have a book shelf with 150 books that are all about racism Strom Thurmond Ben that's one of the exceptions Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy one of the few five out of 100 that's not even five percent make it plain man make it plain uh let's see in I guess specifically, what what were you trying to solve a problem with the Bible told them so? And if so, what problem? You know, I guess I think more than solving a problem, I was trying to answer a question. And uh, the question I was trying to answer was trying to make sense of my own experience. So uh, I grew up and, and, and came of age um, as a a white evangelical. Um, I, I uh, was very much reared in, in white evangelical Christianity and um, ultimately was trying to make sense of the way that uh, my fellow white evangelicals, uh, from my perspective, as I came of age in this country um, in the um, 70s and 80s and, and, and 90s, uh, began to, to take more um attention to what was going on in American society and conversations of race that were taking place uh, all around me, uh, how those conversations sounded different uh, in, in the sanctuaries of my, of my church. Um, so ultimately, uh, as, as an American historian, as many of us American historians do, we choose to write about uh, topics that will make sense of our own experiences. And this is what I was trying to do in, in this in this book, I wanted to figure out why it was that uh, the white Christians that I went to church with um, were so different, uh, I guess, in the way that they approached race in kind of hushed tones. Uh, talk and discussions about racism were quickly um, uh, dismissed and, and, and pushed aside as unnecessarily divisive. Uh, there was an emphasis um, to be colorblind. And uh, I was just kind of genuinely curious where all this, where all this came about. At the, at the same time that I was having these kind of experiences in, in my church, I was also uh, attending public schools in Kansas City. I grew up in, in Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, was attending um, public schools there where we were having very different discussions about race. And this was, this was in high school or Rodney King had happened, and O.J. Simpson was happening, and, and discussions of race and racism uh, in American society were, were happening on a regular basis in places like my high school and weren't happening at all in places like my churches. And I, I wanted to know why, why such a different disconnect. So I decided that if I was going to write a history of this, I'd have to go back and look at the period of time when white Christians could not... Uh, be silent about this would have to be on the record in some way, shape or form about their feelings of race and decided the civil rights period was likely going to be one of those, those moments in American history that, that would contain a, uh, 
a rich historical record for me to consult. And uh, so I went to graduate school, and I and I uh, started investigating white Christians in the civil rights movement. And I ended up landing in South Carolina as my as my case study for this book. And what I discovered uh, is what's in the pages of this book that that uh, it wasn't that white Christians were necessarily always quite about race, that they were always seeking to be colorblind. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. Um, in, the, in the midst of the of the civil rights movement, white Christians were um, avowedly uh, outspoken opponents of uh, civil rights activists and were doing everything they could to thwart the civil rights movement. And they were doing so uh, with the belief that, that what they were doing was the will of God. Um, and so this was a this was a, a kind of a hit me like a like a thunderbolt in ways and uh, and began the process of, of helping me understand my own people um, forty years after after the folks I'm writing about in this book how it was that they came to respond the way they did to issues of race and racism. Hmm. Very early in the text, like in the introduction. Um, you revealed that you are now, or at least recently, have been attending uh, multiracial churches. Uh, you list two of them specifically, I guess, for one. Can you explain for our listening audience what a multiracial church is, what that experience consists of, um, and sure. then why you included that? And I mean, that's early, like right in the introduction, why you put that out front in this text. Yeah, that's that's in the acknowledgments of the book, um, and the reason I I, I put it up out there was one because it's, it's it's part of my story. So, so for those who might not be familiar with with multiracial churches, so um, you know, America is a racialized society, um, and one of the the most uh, prevalent parts of American society, the most the most racialized is is the American church. Um, um, deeply uh, racially divided, um, deeply homogenous, and so um, actually it was the work of uh, Michael Emerson, um, the aforementioned uh, Dr. Michael Emerson, that uh, started talking about ways in which multiracial congregations uh, might be a necessary step for Christians who are interested in addressing the problem of race to actually find uh, a common ground, a uh, common understanding uh, for white Christians in particular to begin to Im- immersing themselves into uh, networks uh, that were um, not just all homogenous. And so multiracial church movement has, has really um, taken off in about the last 20 years. And uh, increasingly there are churches who are, are attempting to become uh, intentionally multiracial, that is, in, intentionally trying to bring together people of different races uh, for the purpose of demonstrating um, the reconciling power of, of the gospel of Christ. So the two churches that, that my family and I have been participating in, one was down in Houston, Texas, um, while I was still in grad school, and one has been here in Marion, Indiana. Um, and, and Marion um, are both churches that are intentional about trying to uh, live out um, a way of life together as people of different races and different ethnic groups that speak to the power of reconciliation uh, in a in a society that is is uh, is racially divided and racially polarized. Um, 
in, in both of these uh, churches have been um, really uh, profound sources of um, of encouragement and sustenance for me. Uh, I'm obviously studying a, a topic here that is, um, as someone who is, who is still a Christian, um, it's a topic that is, is uh, harrowing, that is difficult, that is uh, depressing. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a topic that, uh, that my uh, church family has been um, just life-giving to me in terms of, uh, of helping me understand ways in which, um, despite the, the, um, the messiness, the awfulness, the, uh, the grotesque history of, of our church, that there are ways forward um, that, that, that the Christian message of hope uh, still is still possible. That's why I included in the acknowledgement because these, these church families have been, have been that important to me. And, uh, and so that's why they get mentioned right up front. Fascinating. Okay. You mentioned your family. Uh, is it like, are you married? I am. I'm, I'm married and have two sons. Okay. Uh, is your partner white or non-white? My, she is white. She is white. Yep. Oh, let's see. Uh, before I start to pull some, or actually I can do uh, two in one. I will give a quote from the book with my request. The I picked like three that I thought like really, ah, these are great little nuggets that kind of get to the core essence, I think, of the text. So this is from uh, page 152. Uh, a school board member present at the forum later recalled one after another. White parents laid out the charges, fights on the playground. Look at this. Terrorism in the restrooms. Are you serious? Vulgar language. Attempted sexual acts. Mm. Chaos in the classrooms. Still no mention of race. Finally, a black man said it. You people ought to cut out the code language. What you're saying is, it ain't the bussin', it's the niggers. Make it plain. Uh, and that's so important later on in the book. But one request that I will make, because I did mention the pussyfooting before uh, in your response, uh, Dr. Hawkins, homogenous, racialized, racially divided, even race. None of these are accurate. White privilege, you can put that in there too. None of these are accurate. If we're talking about white supremacy, wait till we get to Lamar school. That is not race relations. That is not racially divided. That is not a homogenous environment. Even that, that word homogenous, we're talking about milk. We're talking about that, but it, it doesn't even get to the power dynamic of black people don't have meetings and decide we're going to purge all of the white people from our church. White people do that on a regular basis, not just with the church, bank, schools, all kinds of things. Anything they decide, really, all across the land. That is not that we have messy racial history and all the rest of it. That is the religion, the system of white supremacy. So my request, I was going to play our buckets and buckets of words sound clip, but better I can just give a clip from your book. 
Uh, if we cannot use words to kind of get back to that pussyfooting and not being direct, as you said, we're not talking about racial equality, white supremacy, racism. That's what this book is all about. Can I make that request, Dr. Hawkins? Make that request. I'll do my best to abide by it. Much obliged. On page 4041 uh, of the text make sure some of my page numbers are off. This is about the Citizens Council uh, very early on in the text. I think most folks, if you're familiar with uh, the history of white supremacy in this area of the world, uh, not just the Ku Klux Klan, but different uh, white terrorist organizations. They said terrorism with trouble in the bathroom with children. The Citizens Council, you want to talk about terrorism, you have a group of grown white people who can say, hey, you don't work here anymore well you don't live here anymore or can devise all the other means to terrorize you and everyone in your household because we don't want negras going to school with our children the citizens council and have these popping up all over the land talking about South Carolina specifically so this is page oh here we go right at the end of where 31 Make sure I get it correctly. 31, we get one of our first quotes from the great Strom Thurmond. Uh, so you write, by the second, the second purpose of the citizens' councils and the reason for the organization's notoriety was to prevent desegregation by taking advantage of black economic dependence on the white power structure of Southern society. In this way, the councils could stave off attempts at school desegregation by using economic pressure. If black parents signed a petition requesting their child be transferred to an all-white school, for instance, the local citizens council would spread this news through its network. As this information circulated, the black parents might suddenly find their credit cut off at the local grocery store or have their mortgage called in by the bank. Because the councils were composed of prominent members of Southern society, they were able to exert pressure on anyone, white or black, who attempted to violate segregation. Skipping down just a few paragraphs. By October 1955, the council movement had become so popular among white South Carolinians that they formed at a rate of one per week in the state for the next year dedication almost immediately the councils flexed their political muscle writing to senators and congressmen to express their disappointment that national leaders were not doing more to protect their way of life and demanding that their elected officials state on the record what efforts they were taking to preserve segregation the councils quickly caught the attention of South Carolina leaders. My man, Senator Strom Thurmond, began appearing at council rallies in December 1955 to speak about the importance of segregation in schools, earning high praise from the councilors for doing so. You are a great American and should right now throw your hat in the ring for the presidency, a satisfied constituent wrote to Thurman after hearing the senator defend segregation at a citizens council meeting. As the movement grew, so did Thurman's support of it, with the senator frequently returning to attend organizing rallies for the council throughout 1956. Rest assured, Thurman informed the Florence Citizens Council, 
I shall do everything possible to help maintain segregation in our schools. End quote. What is the significance of the white churches being behind these flourishing terrorist citizens councils? Yeah, great question. So the, the church's complicity with the citizen council goes pretty deep. And the way these, the way these operated, um, the, the citizens councils operated, as you've kind of highlighted from the, from the selections of the book that you, you've written, is um, to go around and to use the economic pressure that they could, they could bring um, to maintain segregation in, in the different communities. So we see citizens' councils springing up uh, as early as a month after the Brown decision in 1954 in Mississippi, and then it just spread like wildfire as community after community sees their efficiency and the white power brokers in those communities then uh, adopt these same practices. And the interesting thing about the, the citizens council's meetings were that they were kind of a quasi religious experience in that, um, they weren't, they weren't explicitly uh, religious themselves, but they baptized all of their actions uh, with religious language in ways, um, and religious actions so that, um, Every meeting would begin with a prayer. There was a minister on hand that would uh, that would kind of uh, give the blessing for the evening. Uh, ministers increasingly came to occupy um, positions of authority within the council movement, um, and in in, in um, not surprising ways, then um, Christianity becomes embedded in these these citizen councils movements in in such a way that when um, other Christian leaders began to express some concerns and some reservations about the way that, uh, that these, uh, citizens councils were, were, were using this economic pressure to terrorize and to pressure, um, folks who were trying to change the system. These Christian leaders got a lot of pushback, uh, from other Christians themselves who were saying that, what are you doing? These are, these are good God fearing, organizations that are doing God's will in this land and shouldn't be, shouldn't be tolerated. Uh, the, the resistance to them shouldn't be tolerated. Um, and so pastors who would speak out against citizen councils would find themselves uh, dismissed from their pulpits, um, would, would find themselves um, reassigned to other churches if they were in a particular denomination in which uh, the congregation didn't have the final say on who was going to be their pastor. And what we saw then, um, if we go back and, and look at the, the history of South Carolina, are ways in which um, the Citizen Council movement becomes riddled through uh, with justica justification and support of white churches. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Dr. J. Russell Hawkins. Um, one thing that stood out to me so much of this, you heard letters pouring in, got to save our schools and hey, for cows listeners, if you want to go way back. So we talked about in the state of Virginia, where Gus T was born, they closed the schools in Prince Edward County for five hmm. years, as opposed to having niggers in school with white children. Talk about massive resistance. We uh, went back and read the book. They closed their schools and all that in the archives, 13 years um, in the midst of all that. The irony for me in reading your book, and it might be, Hey, I mean, you can tell me that, Hey, Gusty, you're just spoiled, whatever. I am no spelling champion, but wow, 
reading these <laughs> letters from white people that oh my gosh the niggers are going to wipe our daughters and blah, 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 and they're going to mess up the schools and them spelling grateful g-r-e-a-t-f-u-l or I guess they were trying to get at foolishness but spelling it f-o-l-i-s-h-i-n-e-s-s and this, I mean, goes on. I've read, you know, other historical works where they quote people from the time period and they might have a misspell. But I mean, it just seemed like a lot of spelling errors. Am I crazy, uh, Dr. Hawkins? Yeah, gosh, you're not you're not crazy at all. And you're also not the first person to, to ask about this. And and uh, the, the letters that come pouring in from concerned white parents about the quality of their education of their children is going to suffer uh, does have like this, this certain irony to it in that they're riddled through with all these spelling errors. And this is a, this is a, a point of um, an editorial decision on my part. There's, there's a lot of historians who, would have just gone ahead and cleaned up those those spelling errors uh, just for the sake of readability and not to distract the readers with with the grammatical mistakes that you're pointing out. Um, I thought it was important to keep those spelling errors in as a way to kind of uh, to show um, the full humanity, the more the, the complexity of these of these people's lives. Um, the, the same folks who are so concerned about the educational standards for their children. Um, perhaps not meeting those same educational standards that, that they imagine themselves meeting. Um, what that what that means, of course, is that from Oxford University Press's perspective, um, if I'm going to keep those spelling errors in there, they want to make sure that, that this doesn't come back on them as a press for not doing the due diligence to catch those uh, those mistakes. And so I had to put a little, you know, a little sick in there after every one of those grammatical errors which I think just even goes to heighten, uh, highlight again, like how many spelling errors there are. But uh, yeah, you're you're not you're not crazy. Uh, there there are a lot of them for sure. I applaud your decision. Um, slightly different reasoning, although I mean the humanity for sure. I understand that, but wow, like these are not Ivy League scholars who are writing in to complain about the niggers, even though you had a lot of that too. But I mean, wow, the irony was not grateful. For, I don't even, I guess that's foolishness, but man, uh, then this one stood out just for, hey, us being on the context of white supremacy. I thought this one, I had to get this one in. So this is on page 53. You write, interestingly, integrationists, put that in quotes, often appealed to the first half of Acts 1726 the idea that God had made all the peoples of the earth from one person as evidence that all humanity shared a common ancestry before God and could therefore lay claim to the equality that Jim Crow denied Christian segregationists rejected this interpretation as biblical proof texting one of the worst things any preacher and any Bible teacher can do is take a piece of scripture out of its context. J. L. Wood Welsh told his Baptist congregation in Columbia, South Carolina, before launching into a sermon defending segregation as Christian. For many good people in our denomination and many in other denominations, both clerical and lay who entertain opposite opinions on this great matter as voiced this morning I have only the profoundest respect but having said all this 
I cannot suppress expressing my surprise at some of the conclusions many of these good people come to, said Welsh, drawing his sermon to a close. I cannot concur in their conclusions. I am baffled to understand their refusal to face many self-evident facts. I am stunned at their urging mixed membership in our churches. Anytime where context pops up in a book, I always, oh, there it is again. But in this one specifically, it stood out. I almost said, man, the same thing I said about the spelling errors, like, wow, white people are seemingly doing the same thing who support white supremacy, racism, just any old scripture or hodgepodge. See, Jesus and, and God, they support segregation. But I just the irony of that, of saying that, oh, man, you're just snatching scripture scriptures out of context to uh, refute what is self-evident that the races should be separate. Uh, your thoughts, Dr. Hawkins? Yeah, great, 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 great question, Gus. I I, uh, I think this is one of the, the central uh, tensions of the book and, and the arguments of the book I'm, I'm trying to highlight here is that, uh, you know, there's this question about uh, legitimate biblical interpretation or, or legitimate theological interpretation and and what uh, these segregationists uh, are, are these these white Christians are trying to do um, the the ground they can stand on I guess that's a better way to say it the, the the ground they can stand on to try to make their claim as to why their interpretation is accurate and not just like this proof text that they're claiming um, other folks are making when it comes to scriptural interpretation. They make their stand on the idea that they have more people who support their understanding of these interpretations than, than the other side who, who say that, no, God doesn't want Jim Crow uh, to exist anymore. And I think it's a really important point um, to, to consider and to think about when, when we're asking questions about proper biblical interpretation. Um, you know, the uh, American evangelicalism is not, is, is not Catholicism. It doesn't, it doesn't have a Pope who can say, this is how we interpret and understand this, this text. Um, there's no one who speaks uh, from that, that position of authority within American Christianity in general, American Protestantism uh, more specifically. And so when you have no authority like that, then the best you can do to prove your point and to prove your interpretation correct is to say that the majority of people who read their Bibles read it the same way. So when these segregationist white Christians are confronted with folks who are saying that uh, we should do away with this system of segregation, um, and they claim that, that God is is on the side of segregation, they, they have to, first of all, say that the other people are making bad biblical interpretations, but more to the point, rather than, than criticizing their, their exegesis, more often than not, what we see is them defending their position by saying that most people agree with us. All, all people, uh, until just a few years ago, thought this way, and there's been like this small group of, of folks who have infiltrated the church and it's just these these rabble rousers who we shouldn't give much attention to. Um, this is consistently the arguments that you hear when it comes to this idea of of proper biblical interpretation. Um, and so it, it it seems kind of silly to talk about um, proof texters who are talking about proof texting, but that's essentially what what these folks are doing. 
and they're they're defending their proof text by saying, well, yeah, but it's a majority rule, and they don't obviously recognize it as proof texting, but uh, they're 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 hiding behind the orthodoxy by way of majority rule that is kind of common within American evangelicalism. Context of White Supremacy, the book, The Bible Told Them So, How Southern Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy. Rarity to have that in the title. Uh, This is a little bit further ahead in the book, and I mean, wow. The two word, keywords for the program, Strom Thurmond, but Dylan Roof also, like so many times, because he did some of the same things before he went to slaughter those nine parishioners, including State Senator uh, Reverend Clementa Pinckney. He also had those photographs where he was going to some of the Civil War monuments and slave monuments and what have you with the Confederate flag. I thought it was so poignant. You start many of the chapters uh, going back to First Baptist and connecting this with the Confederacy and their decision, 1860, to leave the Union. Um, kind of moving slightly forward in the text. Ah, not going to read the whole thing, but I'll give them a snippet. This is in Chapter 3, Jim Crow on Christian campuses, the desegregation of Furman and Wolford. God be with us is my prayer and let us all be willing to die rather than free our slaves. State political leaders agreed with such sentiments. The day after Lincoln's election, the entire South Carolina Federation federal congressional delegation resigned their positions in Washington, D.C. and returned home. That same day, South Carolina's General Assembly called for a state convention to consider its next steps. The delegates who assembled in the First Baptist Church, the men for whom Dr. Breaker was now seeking divine aid, were the answer to the General Assembly's call. Determined to keep their enslaved populace, the delegates began debating whether their state could remain in a country they saw as growing ever more hostile to their peculiar institution. So I'm skipping down a few paragraphs. You write, whatever the cause of first, first Baptist sparing not burned down during the Civil War or left for some reason, we don't know, mystery of history. The same brick-columned portico and spacious sanctuary that had housed the Secession Convention were still standing a century later when, in 1964, delegates once again gathered in the church's pews for a convention that held echoes of 1860. The enslaved parishioners had long abandoned the church where they had once been forced to worship, but their spirit nonetheless hung over the proceedings of the 1964 South Carolina Baptist Convention. This convention in Columbia was the culminating episode of a 13-month process to determine whether Furman University, the flagship Baptist college in South Carolina, would open its doors to black students. With the former slave balcony as a backdrop, white Baptist messengers at the 1964 convention debated whether the, the descendants of those who a century before had occupied that balcony should be allowed to attend Baptist colleges. The same sanctuary that 104 years earlier had been a Baptist pastor that had seen a Baptist pastor bless Southern secessionists now witnessed a Baptist minister call for a vote to support racial segregation on the campuses of Baptist 
universities throughout South Carolina, sitting in the same straight back wooden pews of their antebellum predecessors, white Baptists in 1964 voted to deny black students entry to their church schools, preferring instead to keep their colleges for white students only. Although a century separated the two votes in the first Baptist church, both were connected across time and space by a perceived threat to an established racial order. I said, Ben Tillman, my quote is the threat of Negro domination hangs over us like the sword of Damocles. I found that profound for so many reasons. I mean, the religion, I could just end it there, the religion of white supremacy, or I guess I go the other way if I had to give a different set of two words, generational dedication. Mm. Dr. Hawkins? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate that you appreciate that. And this is one of the, the, the themes of all my chapters that I want to, uh, I, I try to in this book demonstrate the ways in which we're talking about a, uh, uh, it's changed over time to be sure, but one of the consistence that we see in American history is the maintenance of white supremacy. Uh, and, the way in which this gets enacted across the century changes, but I think that there is there is a connectivity that goes back into the past as well. Um, and and something like this this example from the First Baptist Church in Columbia, um, I mean, just it was just so um, so um, it, it, just, it fit together so nicely. This 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 uh, the same sanctuary. Where white Christians in 1860 attended and voted their way out of the Union to to maintain their system of of, of enslaving other human beings would be the same site, the very same sanctuary where 1964 these white Christians, uh, the descendants of these same white Christians, gather again. Um, and again, uh, are seeking to maintain white supremacy. And in this, this case, it's no longer about slavery, but it's about uh, keeping Furman University uh, an all-white school. And so I think what we, what we see uh, throughout the story of American history is the, the different manifestations of white supremacy that takes different forms in different periods, but you can kind of find this connecting thread that, that goes all the way back to the, the, the earliest days of this country. We just uh, mentioned, I said, sometimes our timing here at the cows can be amazing. Just this past weekend, we were talking about some of the history of politics in North Carolina and uh, Harvey Gantt. And then I was reading it because I called, man, there's Harvey Gantt again. My goodness. I said, they should have Harvey Gantt Day in North Carolina. In fact, maybe in South Mm -hmm. Carolina and North Carolina. Uh, This is uh, on page 76 of the Bible told them so. Oh, man. For listeners, for non-white listeners, I've said for years, over a decade, white people cannot be ignorant about racism. I love it when I get books that just add to my collection where I can just show them like, oh, no, no, no. You will get in trouble with other white people if anything even suggests you don't understand racism, white supremacy, and what your behavior and obligation 
to that religion system is. Harvey Gantt, page 76 of the Bible told them so. Harvey Gantt Day, Harvey Gantt Day. Uh, Dr. Hawkins writes the prediction that Christian colleges would soon be the last option for segregated higher education in South Carolina proved true. In the summer of 1962, a young black man named Harvey Gantt started the process that would desegregate the state's public colleges and universities when he attempted to enroll at Clemson College Pitchfork. Ben Tillman is a co-founder. Gantt's enrollment efforts brought him to the Clemson campus on a June afternoon where he was greeted by Reverend Charles A. Webster. Webster was a white pastor in his late 20s who as director of student work at Clemson First Baptist Church, also ministered on the college campus. Webster directed Gantt, the latter also a Baptist, to the office of the registrar as a gesture of Christian courtesy from one believer to another. By the time Gantt, I'm skipping down a little bit, by the time Gantt officially enrolled in classes at Clemson in January 1963, just, uh, whew, Michael Jeffrey Jordan was born in February of 1963, literally days after Gannon rolls at Clemson. Two decades after all of this, Michael Jordan's mom asks uh, him to endorse Harvey Gantt. And he says, I don't know who Harvey Gantt is. Ah, I Harvey Gantt Day. No one should ever be allowed to say that ever, 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 ever. Harvey Gantt Day for North Carolina and South Carolina. That is a horrible uh, excuse. If you grew up in North Carolina, one literally days after he went to Clemson. Anyway, by the time Gantt officially enrolled in, cl in classes at Clemson in January 1963, Charles Webster was no longer ministering on campus, having been ousted from his position at First Baptist, when church deacons recommended it was time for the white minister to find another church. Webster took the deacon's suggestion and tendered his resignation, which the First Baptist congregation voted overwhelmingly to accept. Not surprisingly, he never ministered in another Baptist church. Uh, white people cannot be ignorant about racism and you have quite a few examples like this in the book isn't that true dr hawkins it is it is yes a constant theme in the in the, in the book is the, the power that the laity in america and these southern churches had to force out uh those people who they saw as transgressing this natural order of things that they thought that god had set in place and so whether it's it's uh it's a, a minister directing Harvey Gantt to the registrar's office, whether it's ministers who speak out against uh, the citizens councils, whether it's a, uh, a minister who happened to share over dinner with, uh, with the father of a federal judge, um, his support of, of the Brown decision. Um, these are all people in the book who, who find themselves in at the, um, at the mercy of their congregations. Then when they find out that, they think something differently than, than the congregations themselves and, and, uh, and then put out the jobs. So it's a, it's a common theme in, 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 uh, in many of the chapters of the books, uh, the way that this, this process plays out. Indeed. Uh, see that throughout the system. And again, this is one that I point to white people cannot 
be ignorant about racism because I hear that on a regular basis. And again, if you were doing anything that even seemed like you don't understand what's happening and again, what your duties are as a white woman, white man in all of this, other white people will let you know sternly sometimes as though you should already know better. I shouldn't have to tell you this. Am I being incorrect? It didn't sound like they were talking. No. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're not, you're not, not incorrect at all. I mean, the, this, uh, the, the, the border deacons, um, in the case of, of this, uh, Hurricane incident, um, not only were, were anticipating waiting for, for, uh, for this minister to, to do, take this action, um, they were, were, uh, not at all surprised to hear that he was. He was a little too, a little too radical from their perspective already, um, had suggested some, some interracial, uh, as he called it, uh, gatherings, um, of, of black and white students from around the area. And so they weren't surprised that, that he would have, uh, assisted Harvey Gant and then used that as, as a pretext for his dismissal. Mm, 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 mm. <sighs> uh, let's see. Uh, one of the more important key word, key words, two of them, Stroma Thurman. Uh, he pops up so many times in the book. I tried to pick out like three, like really pivotal ones, uh, where Strom Thurman points out and why this is so important. Uh, so this one starts out at the very bottom of 62. You write occasionally the mere appearance of advancing civil rights for black Americans was enough to prompt letters from concerned white Christians. For instance, when a black orderly at a hospital in Georgia was accused of raping a restrained psychiatric patient in 1955, city officials released refused to release the orderly's name and, according to the Augusta Herald, they tried to keep the case undercover. Protecting the identity of the accused was too much for E.A. Wilder of Belvedere, South Carolina, who wrote to Thurman to express his belief that sensible people would understand that the black hospital orderly ought to be hung or something else. That's one of those where I generally would do a rewind like, wow, something else. Delectable Negro. What else could you possibly do? Other Oh, rewind just for Emmett Till. Uh, protecting the identity of the accused was too much for E.A. Wilder of Belvedere, South Carolina, who wrote to Thurman to express his belief that the sensible people would understand that the black hospital orderly ought to be hung or something else. But Wilder was not surprised. After all, he wrote, these incidents should be expected when the scallywags and carpetbaggers throw them, black Americans, down our throat and put them on equal with white people. To Wilder, society was obviously trying to upend the hierarchy that God's word made clear. The Bible tells us they are an inferior race. See, that's not even grammatically, but whatever. An inferior race to the white and a curse was put on them and they would know their color. They was turned black and cast out into the wilderness to find his wife. Wilder acknowledged that Thurman was fighting and doing 
all you can to keep them out of our schools and he encouraged the senator to keep on fighting to the end. Most often public officials received letters from their constituents when the existing racial order seemed imperiled by the actions of civil rights demonstrators or agents of the federal government in the early 19 in early 1956 for example Ann White a self-described housewife mother and Bible reader wrote to Attorney General Herbert Brownwell to protest the Eisenhower administration's complicity in school desegregation you are trying to take away God's prerogative in the matter of segregation white wrote if you will refer to your Bible in particular to the book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 through 28 after God created Adam a white man he gave authority over everything and she underlined it that he God had created white quoted additional passages from Leviticus Deuteronomy and first Peter before concluding we can deduce from all from this that all men were not created equal she underlined not and if he had intended anything different he would have changed his plans long before now now again this is in my Strom Thurmond category who emerges as such a central figure in the midst of all of this his filibuster against civil rights uh, legislation you get all these wonderful letters that are incidentally at his archives <laughs> down in South Carolina which is amazing that might be worth a, a field trip but can you talk about <sighs> he like Ben Tillman has a statue that also did not come down even after Dylan, Dylan Storm Roof can you talk about the importance of, of Strom Thurmond in this narrative oh sure sure Strom Thurmond is is uh, as you just say he, he's a he's a central figure in the in the fight to maintain white supremacy, uh, and we often think of him in terms of, of obviously in the political sphere. Um, his his run for president in '48 as a Dixiecrat uh, candidate and standard bearer. Uh, his his filibuster, as you already mentioned, repeatedly. I mean, his filibuster in '57, his filibuster again in '64. He is often conceived as a uh, as as a champion of the uh, of the white supremacist, and for that reason, he gets letters not just from South Carolinians. He gets letters from everyone, um, and his his papers are just a, a uh, uh, they're incredible in, in terms of their their breadth, but they're also um, they're so extensive. Um, that it's it's not surprising that we find within his letters then um, folks who are writing to him with their religious arguments as well. So so Thurman um, accepts these these uh, and responds to these Christians who are writing to him, um, uh, encouraging uh, what they're doing and saying he stands behind them all the way. Uh, Thurman Thurman uh, he's not just a, a political figure in some ways he's. He's, a, he's an aide to the religious resistance to civil rights as well. Um, I never could uh, nail down with with uh, Thurman whether or not he um, he was a Christian segregationist in the same sense that these other folks I'm writing about are. But he certainly is supportive of what they're doing, um, and they they draw strength from his resistance. Um, he's there to introduce. Um, uh, prominent religious figures. He's there to give blessings on the citizens' councils. Um, so he he is 
he was kind of this, uh, this, this, this thread thread that goes throughout this, this book, um, in ways that, that, uh, that was really in, important for, for constructing this argument. Um, if Thurman's letters aren't there, um, it, it's hard to imagine, uh, being able to tell the story, uh, because of, of the ways that, that his, his, uh, his office kept all of his correspondence, and, and unfortunately, they've not been purged. Not surprising. Wouldn't want this sort of material to get out to people to, you know, continue to <laughs> study and learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to mm-hmm. read a little bit more just so that people can grasp. Maybe they'll be encouraged to read the book. Uh, the Bible told them <laughs> so. Uh, this is uh, the bottom of 144, focusing on the family, white family. Uh, You write as the number of private schools in South Carolina mounted. So did the concern of white parents who found themselves unable to afford the new schools and were left coping with the worst fears their minds could conjure about the now integrated schools. Must the parents of any whites who are unable financially to send their children to a private school have to subject them to a lower level of education? expose them to the degradation of morals and perhaps physical and sexual dangers raping black males a concerned mother named Naomi Floyd asked Strom Thurmond in 1969 the establishment of private schools is going to create a more definite segregation in the south than has ever been experienced since the days of slavery the less fortunate whites who have to attend public schools will become absorbed by the Negro population warned floored. I don't know if you know what that means, but it sounds ominous. I'm skipping down a little bit. They continue. How can white people who live in rural areas allow their little girls to get on the bus with Negro drivers before the sun has even come up? Would you? Dun, dun, dun. Skipping down the people of South Carolina has oh, the grammar nothing against Negroes another parent assured Thurman they're just a race of people that belong together God made them just as they are and wanted them to stay that way if he had wanted us half and half don't they know he would have made them that way they're trying to change God's will other white parents in South Carolina clearly shared this sentiment and acted accordingly to avoid the integrated schools. By the mid-1970s, South Carolina, the last state in the Union to desegregate their public schools, had enrolled a higher percentage of students in private schools than any other southern state. Now, they do have a substantial population of black people in South Carolina, so they will submit, you know, we have lots of reasons, lots more raping black males. Uh, do you have a, a, a thought about this long running and consistent black male rapists, whether it's the bus driver, the black male at the psychiatric ward, black male rapists are wanting what this goes all the way back to pitchfork Ben Tillman. Do you have a theory about why this is such an effective and long running fear for white people? Yeah, I, I think that you're you're certainly right about this, Gus. This is a long standing um, a trope that goes all the way back to to the earliest days of, of Reconstruction. Um, 
You know, there, there are other historians who have written on this uh, and have linked this the this uh, the fear of the of the black rapist to um, discussions of gender and patriarchy in ways that, that I find quite convincing in terms of uh, understanding the power structure of Southern society uh, before the Civil War and after the Civil War um, and the role of, of patriarchy within that society meaning that uh, one of the, the tenets of, uh, of a patriarch um, is the ability to control the sexual access uh, to your women um, as, as, as these patriarchs understood themselves. And so um, before the Civil War, we see this patriarchy that exists um, and, in, and insists, in fact, that slavery has to be maintained in part because to say that slavery goes away is then to start to question whether or not the patriarchy in general will have to go away. Because if, if, if slavery is, uh, is not, um, biblical as folks were increasingly making the arguments back in the mid, uh, 19th century, well then next thing you know, you're going to say that, uh, marriage is is also uh, not biblical. And in the same way, the Bible supports, slavery, the Bible supports marriage, the same way the Bible supports the, the natural relationship of a master and slave, the Bible supports the natural relation of a husband and wife, and so to do away with um, slavery, these folks before the Civil War said, was to undermine the, the patriarch. Well, when, uh, when slavery does go away by, by way of, of, uh, of the guns of the Civil War, and uh, the the patriarchy has been substantially like undermined now in their justification for having the white male patriarch on top of Southern society. There has to be a, a, a reassertion of the role of the white patriarch. And so it's not surprising then historians who have written about this suggest that after the civil war is when you start seeing all of this discussion about, um, about black male rapists. Um, and then the, the, uh, the patrolling of this um, of relationships between black men and white women become ever more paramount in the minds of these white patriarchs because they're trying to reestablish their their authority as the white male patriarch. So uh, this is the work of a, of a historian named Stephanie McCurry, um, who whose work I find really really uh, informative on this. But I think this is where we see the the initial establishment of this trope of, of the, of the black male rapist. And it's certainly one that, that holds throughout the, the, the subsequent centuries, as, as you've said. Um, I mean, you, you brought up Dylan Roof, um, a, a few times this evening already. Um, I'm sure you're aware of this, but, but, but Dylan Roof, uh, says one of the reasons that he gives for, for, for his actions that night for, for killing, um, the parishioners at mother Emanuel is, is that, uh, they, they rape, you rape our women is what Dylan Roof said. Um, and so the, the, the trope of the, of the black male rapist is certainly one that we see in the book, the time period I'm writing about. We saw all the way back in the reconstruction period of Ben Tillman. And we see it all the way up into the present with, uh, with, with Dylan Roof. Anthony Broadwater, take your pick. Um, that I think it's, it's so important. Um, and particularly what you said about in terms of patriarchy and uh, access to females uh, 
Eldridge Cleaver in Soul on Ice, he talks about this very issue in saying that it's not just uh, denying, as you said, policing uh, black males access to white women, but also white male access to black females, non-white females in total. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver talks about that explicitly and that whew, with Strom Thurmond, this is one time I'm going to slip from your book, Essie May Washington Williams book, Dear Senator, just reading a quick segment to ask my question. She is Strom Thurmond's daughter. Uh, he was having, well, we'll read. Dear Senator, she writes, Tillman was one of the states, Ben Tillman was one of the state's great folk heroes and Will Thurman was his chief advisor. It was Ben Tillman who taught little Strom how to shake hands like that. Carrie Butler told me it nearly killed me. I said it's to sh it's supposed to show strength of character. She replied weak handshake weak man. Strong men who lynched weak black men. I thought. How could the son of this architect of white supremacy fall in love with my mother, a black woman? Is it safe? Was all I could muster in the way of a query. Carrie shrugged rather enigmatically. Love is love. It's colorblind. I knew I had to read this when I got to that. Besides, she added, all that hate talk is just politics. Then why aren't you two married? I wanted to ask, but I held my tongue. Instead, I asked how she and my father had met. She explained to me how she, as well as her recently deceased sister, had been working at the Thurman home on Columbia Road, one that she promised to show me before we left Edgefield. Strom had graduated from Clemson University and was living at home while teaching classes and coaching football at Edgefield High School. It was 1925. He was 23. She was 15. That's kind of another rewind for many, many, many mm -hmm. reasons. She was 15. He was 23. I don't know where you all are. The state where I am, that is not anything to discuss. That is rape and that is not. It is not love is love. Nobody wants to hear about any of that. That would just be called the police. That is rape. Continuing. She and her sister made beds, cleaned, and did basic housekeeping. He was known for having an eye for the ladies. And he was handsome, as you can see. He was always running in the road, half naked at the crack of dawn, because that was part of his health routine. I couldn't help but notice. And he noticed you? Only after his brother did, Mr. Will. That's what I called him the big brother was going to medical school and he would come home and flirt with me like crazy. I think he saw too many cadavers. Ooh. Let me keep going before I get that. And Mr. Strong would see this and I think he got jealous. And the father, what did he say? Big Mr. Will, he was the nicest man you ever met. Always took an interest in me. Always please and thank you. Sometimes he picked flowers and give them to me. Bought clothes for our whole family. Sweet as sugar. So the other stuff was just politics. He was no Simon Legree, she said, referring to the evil slave driver in Uncle Tom's cabin. Mrs. Thurman, on the other hand, she described as polite but cool and distant. We didn't have that much to do with her. She was strict, very religious, very involved with the Baptist church. 
the church was just a block away from the Thurman Law Office. Carrie told me about the rest of the family and how nice they were all were to her. In addition to Big Brother William, there was another brother, Alan George, who also became a doctor. He flirted with me too. Those boys sure liked women. They liked them so much they both became gynecologists. That's BAM, J. Marion Sims, South Carolina, father of gynecology, generational dedication to white supremacy. I found that a little weird, but not Carrie. She thought it showed how smart and motivated the whole family was. The sisters, an older one named Gertrude, whom my father said I resembled, and the twins, Mary and Martha, were all school teachers. Everybody was educated. Everybody did something special with themselves. You don't often see that in one family where every child makes you proud like that. Strom Thurman, Carrie said, got to know her by helping out in the kitchen and in the vegetable garden behind the big house. He knew everything about fruits and vegetables. He taught agriculture in the high school and wrote articles in the papers. We'd go out to the orchards and pick peaches and he'd know exactly when they were ripe and which ones would be the sweetest. Carrie said, impressed with the domestic skills of such a manly seeming man. Patron, one thing led to another. But where? How? The mother? It was a big house. These were busy people who were always out doing something. Love finds a way, darling. My mother was both proud and embarrassed at the same time. I thought that was a great place to stop. 23 and 15. This is why I said Strom Thurmond key two words for the program I said this I hadn't even read Strom Thurmond in your book yet I said this within the first like five pages as I said the reason was the word separation even the word separ uh, segregation and integration are used a lot in this book if Strom Thurmond is raping the black help how separate are we talking that was one reason why I said oh no this is important Two, this isn't mentioned at all in the book. I said, man, I got to ask Dr. Hawkins, did you know about Strom Thurmond's uh, bedroom activities with his black help? Did you know about all this? Well, I, I, I did know about, um, yeah, about SMA, um, but, but no, what you're reading there, all the, uh, the, the 2315 certainly, certainly didn't know that. No, no. Okay. You but you knew he had a daughter with a black female? Oh yes, yes, I did know that, yeah. yeah. Okay. Why was that not included in the book since that's or did you not think that was relevant to what you were talking about? Well again, Thurman Thurman is a uh for me I, I I'm seeing Thurman as more as a conduit of the letters. Um and the the central he's not an, an agent necessarily in, in the, what I'm talking about in terms of the uh, the folks who are putting forth the uh, the segregationist theology. He was a conduit of that theology. He was the receiver of that theology. And for for me, he was he was helpful insofar as he kept the uh, the letters in his in his papers. Um, <laughs> excuse me, but um, but I didn't I didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't uh, know anything about his um, that the age difference, the raping of uh, of of um, Essie May's mother, um, 
and and didn't didn't see that as part of the story I was telling. Okay, I think that's one. I think we just said Strom Thurmond was kind of a central figure in the text. We had agreed there before the SMA Washington Williams portion. Central figure. He's got all this information. He's mentioned so many times, or people are talking to him. He said he's going and giving introductions to prominent religious figures and doing these filibusters. I mean, he is a central figure in the midst of all of this. Uh, He's got a statue in South Carolina for a reason that they couldn't even remove after Dylan Storm Roof. That's one. For two, a lot of these letters that I've read raping black males, they were right. Black Negro bus driver. Are you going to let your daughter get on the bus? All of this mongrelization talk and intermixing talk and that hypocrisy that and she's pointing out this is not like a one time this seems to be like generational white men raping black females and black males but that's generational that's not important with all of that because I mean that's all throughout your book that's God said we can't do this intermixing that's what this is going to lead to intermixing mongrelization Mm. by the Negro that's not central that you got a flagrant that's flagrant liar if it's no intermixing then get off of that 15 year old black female right if it's separation that's not central to what you're talking about yeah it's a great point it's a great point Gus and and, uh, and man wish I would have uh, had that conversation with you before before the final edits um, yeah I uh, I definitely take your point there I'm putting this out also, as I said, get to say it two times. You should have known better. Uh, I, I mean, wow, you have a lot more education, doctorate, and you got a lot of research on this one. Like, this is a sort of whoops that I look at where I say, no, Dr. Hawkins, because this happens all the time where people bring up Strom Thurmond and conveniently leave out. This is a child raping white man. I don't use the tacky uh, metaphor, call a spade a spade, call a pedophile a child rapist. Same thing I said about all that pussyfooting. 23 and 15 is rape, right? For sure. For sure. With all of this talk here, like consistently white people, they obfuscate. They leave that. They do the same thing with Thomas Jefferson. They leave and it's the same thing. They will talk about it as a romance. Sally Hemings was 14 and his half-sister. He's in his 30s. This is not a romance. It's child rape. And consistently leaving this information out when we have these sort of stories... I view that as white people just are practicing white supremacy racism. It's deliberately lying. It's deliberately obfuscating. There are books that are out about this. She was on C-SPAN, like repeatedly. NPR talked about this. This is an easy, uh, to, I have it. This is not one of those special uh, collections books to read what Essie Mae Washington Williams uh, had to say. And quite frankly, it's exactly how Strom Thurmond practiced racism to sit around and lie, raping black males, raping black males, raping black and in the way that she writes in the book, this wasn't a, oh, he raped this 15-year-old and got her pregnant and moved on. This seemed like this was a continuing. And it's not even just, I'm raping a 15-year-old. She works for us. This is a 15-year-old in South Carolina when you won't even let her go to school with your child. 
and you're raping her and then you have the audacity to come out in broad daylight oh get away from the niggers they're raping us like wow to have all of that not spelled out where someone like me with way less education and I didn't get like uh people to support and fund me to do research on us when I have to point that out when white people don't do this consistently I do not process that as oh we just didn't know we didn't do enough research that I process that as we are practicing racism white supremacy the way we consistently do with white rapists and racists and we're covering up for them we're obfuscating you said you just didn't know this information that's what you said Dr. Hawkins I certainly didn't know that, that, that he had raped, um, but we're talking the age difference. I certainly knew that, that he had a, a black child. And that was, I mean, that's common knowledge uh, at the point that I'm writing. I mean, at that point, the, the statue in South Carolina had even been changed to include SMA's name on it. Including her name on it as, just so I'm understanding, including her name on it. Oh yes, his statue at the, on the on the court on the uh, state house grounds uh, has different you know different sides of the of the pedestal have different parts of of his of his history. So one side has his service to the state, one side has his his family, uh, his children, um, and then in the early two thousands, uh, S.E. May's name was added to that. So if you go and you look at the statue, as you said, that's still standing there. Uh, his, his, uh, it's been changed. The S.E. May's name has been chiseled into this, into this pedestal as well. So, yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, uh, part about the, in my, I'm sure that they didn't add, uh, oh, he was raping 15 year old Carrie no. Butler. That's how S.E. May Washington Williams came to be. And I'm sure they know that like nobody in the what that's not even logical for me to think that the people in South Carolina that they have less information about all of this than I do uh, to put that up like that in my opinion is being true and it's it's not even just what I said so far the word separation is not accurate I think someone said that in the book where they were talking about integration and they said well what do you mean define integration that's a great question if you've got Strom Thurmond you're raping 15 year olds. We're not talking about separation. We're talking about power and domination, which is what I said before. If we were talking about so-called separation, slavery wouldn't even be an issue. There are like many, many reasons as to why this is important to include because language, when we're talking about this as though it's separation and this problem is going to be solved just by having white people and non-white people together in quotes, that's not being honest. We're talking about a power dynamic so that we no longer have white men who can go out with impunity and rape 15 year old black children, male or female or white women who do the same. That's what we're talking about. Very important. Am I being inaccurate? Am I being logical, Dr. Hawkins? I'm, I'm following your logic, Gus. Uh, they switched up our switchboard here. Uh, so I have to do it a little differently today. I'm have to experiment with you guys. Uh, I guess you could press star six one if you have a question. Let me try. All participants now. are unmuted. Q and A session has started. Hmm. Okay, so we'll see how this goes here. If you all press star six one, I'll see the folks who have hands, maybe, and I can get you all on the line. So the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code is five six four nine four three pound 
press star six one. Oh, look at that. Wow. Technology is amazing. Uh, let's see. Our caller at two, two, six, two. If you have a question for Dr. Hawkins, you should be with us. May I be hurt? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Gus, for taking my call, and greetings to everyone online. Uh, greetings to uh, Dr. Hawkins. Uh, my uh, first question is, um, you said earlier that white people tend to turn off their awareness to racism. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think what I meant by that is that uh, white people have the privilege of turning off or turning a blind eye to the reality of racism and the way it manifests itself in this in this world uh, in a way that that uh, that black people and people of color can't. Uh, and so the uh, that was in the in the in the conversation about uh, white people being uh, pained by by racism, and I think I think um, what I have seen is uh, this kind of repeated ability to not be pained uh, because you don't even have to pay attention to it. You can be blind to the way in which it's operating. That's what I meant by that. Okay. Could another word or another phrase be used in saying dedicated to racism, white supremacy? Wouldn't that be a more accurate term? Could you say that again? You cut out for a second. Yes, sir. Wouldn't a better way to say that instead of turning off their awareness would be to say that white people are just dedicated to stomping and subjugating non-white black people? I could see that you, uh, you could say that. Um, I, I don't know that I go that far with it for all folks. Um, I think that there is a uh, an ability to um, an ability to be blind to it. That perhaps I can see how you could construct that as being dedicated to stomping on, uh, as you say, um, others. But I, I. Uh, I think that I can also see this as uh, being willfully uh, blind or blissfully ignorant in ways that, that don't necessarily have to be uh, um, dedicated to maintaining the structure that they are maintaining. Thank you for your response. Um, my next question is, um, you and Gus were just speaking about Strom Thurmond and he has a child with a non-white black female. Um, they, his child, is his child with that non-white black female white? According to the social construct of race in the United States? No. Why is that child not considered white? Yeah, well, great question. <laughs> so, the way that uh, that race has, has has operated as a social construct in the United States of America has said that uh, one drop rule has has held sway within the construction of this ideology of race, and so uh, 
is this child white? Well, again, not in the operative term of the way that uh, the, the social construction of race functions in the United States. Um, are we talking about a biological category with race? Well, well, no, we're not. And so in that instance, um, it, it's, it's, we're not talking about a, a, a ontologically autonomous category. We're not talking about a biological category. We're talking about a socially constructed category. And race in the United States of America has been constructed in such a way that, that to say uh, any time you're, uh, you're talking about people who are said to be black and said to be white mixing, that the offspring of that, of that, uh, of that relationship is, is said to be black. Thank you for your response. My final question is, are white people afraid of that meaning that are they afraid that they are just inferior genetically to non-white people you know that's a that's a good question um i don't know that i can answer that question um i don't i don't know that uh I feel like the extent to which, and this is me just operating or, or speaking not out of, uh, of any um, of, uh, sociological knowledge to this question, so this is just me responding from my from um, best I can. Um, I think there is uh, a fear that uh, those who are said to be white in this country. Um, you're sorry. I'm, your question is: Are they afraid that they're genetically inferior to non-white people? Is that your question? Sorry. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Genetically inferior to non-white people, and especially non-white black people. I, I'm I'm sorry. I just I don't know the answer to that question. Like I, I, I don't think I could say anything uh, uh, helpfully in terms of. Uh, of what a preponderance of white people think about about the genetic inferiority or superiority of uh, of themselves to others. Sorry. Thank you for your response, and thank you guys for taking my call. I'll meet my line. Much obliged, sir. Uh, before I get our next caller, the uh, letter that was written in to Mr. Thurman where there was a fear about white people being absorbed uh, into the Negro population. Does that get at the caller's uh, question at all? Yeah, that's what, that's what I was, I was uh, initially kind of thinking too as well. So this, this idea that um, I don't think it's a, again, I, I, I hesitate to use such like historically outdated understandings of, of race. Um, so when we're talking about these folks 50 years ago, 60 years ago, um, as compared to what people today think, uh, this is why I, I, I get hesitant. But 50 years ago and 60 years ago, I think there was uh, not a concern that there was a genetic um, inferiority of white people um, as opposed to, to um other non-white folks, especially those who are, are, are said to be black, I think 60 years ago it was the opposite. It was um, it was a um, 
an adamant belief of the genetic superiority of, of those who call themselves white. And the fear was that uh, this superiority would be lost as um, racial mixing took place in their mind. And so I think they're, they're deeply influenced by a eugenics movement that, that was fading but still had uh, residual power in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and so that, that feelings uh, 60 years ago, I think, um, were very much in play in terms of like feeling like there's going to be this, this, uh, this swamping or, or overwhelming of the uh, white, so-called white gene pool. Right on. Uh, let's see, the caller B in Santa Rosa. B in Santa Rosa, did you have a question for Dr. J. Russell Hawkins? B in Santa Rosa, did you have a question? Just listening. We are not hearing you. I don't know if your microphone is malfunctioning or if you maybe hit your mute button accidentally or what have you, but we're not hearing you. Be in Santa Rosa, just listening, or did you have a question? Okay. We'll assume you're just listening. Much obliged. Uh, maybe you can give us a hand up or what have you if you um, get a question or have something in. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. I'll keep a eye out if folks have a question in the last few minutes before we let Dr. Hawkins uh, enjoy the rest of his evening. Uh, colorblindness and Lamar. I'll start with the Lamar school incident first because I didn't know about that. Uh, still learning uh, with all the different incidents of school terrorism uh, around black children getting an education. Uh, I would thought I've seen this one or would have seen this one at some point, but I did not. Uh, so this is from 1970. That kind of caught my attention as well, because I know some of the incidents in Boston, Massachusetts were kind of later around this time. And I'd seen some of those, but uh, to have incidents in the South happening this kind of late, relatively speaking, kind of surprised me. Uh, so this is 1970. Uh, you already stated South Carolina kind of fought uh, tooth and nail, uh, quote unquote, to reject, uh, resist uh, having black students in their schools. Uh, all of this uh, is for naught. Courts finally say, hey, you got to do more than so-called token integration where you just have, you know, one or two uh, black student, uh, black students at the school. So on 153, you write in January 1970, following the Supreme Court's directives to the Alexander or excuse me, directives in the Alexander ruling. The U.S. Fourth District Court of Appeals declared that the schools in Lamar must move immediately beyond token desegregation. To accomplish this, court-ordered desegregation. City officials drew zoning plans, zoning plans that sent 520 African American students to the white Lamar schools and transferred 120 white students into the all-black Spalding schools. On March 3rd, whew, almost there, uh, 1970, the second day of the implementation of the new desegregation plan. A group of nearly 200 white parents waited outside the Lamar School with axe handles, bricks, and bottles. When a bus of black students tried to pull up to the school building, the mob blocked the road while some members tore open the engine hood and ripped out cables, rendering the bus immobile. The 16 black students aboard including the driver, a senior at Lamar High, 
got out of the bus and ran into the school as the mob shoved showered the vehicle with rocks and broke out the windows with their axe handles when a second bus of black students arrived it was blocked by the first disabled bus this time the white parents did not bother to wait until the children were off the bus before smashing the windows covered in broken glass the children exited the bus to shouts of run nigger run that's in james lewin book they put that on billboards for sundown towns as south carolina highway patrolmen tried to repel the mob with tear gas before the rioters had been dispersed they managed to overturn both school buses on the side of the road even imagine that how many people do you need to overturn a school bus in the fallout of the lamar school incident 37 men were charged with rioting freed on bail these men departed the county courthouse to the cheers of an appreciative crowd a journalist covering the scene reported that the mention of God and the good Lord was made often a man said God made white men and God made black men and he sure didn't mean for them to mix together this sentiment was shared by Mrs. M. V. Thomas, who wrote to South Carolina Governor Robert McNair to explain the reaction at Lamar. You claim you want the best or, as you say, a quality education for the younger generation. We believe there is no way to give them the best except to separate them. It is better for blacks as same as the whites. Thomas wrote the governor. She continued. We know the blacks are God's children as same as we are. We believe if God had intended for us to mix, he would have made us all the same color or put us together in the first place. Birds and animals don't mix. As I said, I'd never heard of this incident before. So I started to look around online like what in the world? This seems like it should have been big news. And it was the New York Times they covered this and they went to the courthouse all this as he said so after some of these people start coming out they wrote the schools in Lamar have been boycotted by whites since a federal court ordered desegregated the Darling School District two weeks ago Tuesday a mob of 200 whites stormed three buses carrying Negro children to the high school they overturned two empty buses and pelted the police with stones now I don't think there'll be any more trouble not on the surface leastways said mr smith remember the raccoon goes hunting at night i don't even know what that means amen said a younger man in shirt sleeves my idea of a good nigger is martin luther king he and the others in his knot of friends laughed. Dr. King was assassinated by a sniper in 1968, two years before all of this. Had, uh, white people ignorant about racism. Uh, this event stunning. It's kind of as you're closing out as you've got all these private schools opening up and white people have thrown up their hands. <laughs> Forget the public school. South Carolina fought it off so long. It's, this event represents so many things one I didn't know about it too this is kind of late at least my thinking this is kind of late 1970 to kind of have these sort of mob white terrorist events happening yes no 
Yeah, although as you point out, I mean it's it's uh, it's the same timeline as they see up in, in Boston. So uh, I mean it's 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 certainly late later than we expect. But I think that's often because we think of school segregation or desegregation um, being associated with the Brown decision in '54. But in reality, I mean, this was the decision, as, as you as you know, and you referenced earlier with uh, with um, Virginia, that, that states fought uh, in the South, fought massively, and, and for 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 a decade, um, just ignored. Um, so it wasn't until the Supreme Court comes back around in 1967, 68, and 69 with a series of decisions that say, "All right, that's a, that's enough, all deliberate speed and, and dragging your feet, and you have to desegregate your your schools now." And so in 70, when we, when we uh, see the, the, the desegregation of Southern schools, uh, this is when we see this just this explosion of, of private Christian schools as uh, an escape hatch for these white families who all along have been talking about the fact that God doesn't want people of different races to mix. Now, the language that they're talking about that in 1970 has changed over the past 15 years, they're talking about in different ways than they did back in 1955. They try to show in the book, but ultimately their, their purpose is the same, and that's to uh, that's to 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 avoid the the integration of the races that they saw as being an affront to what God uh, wanted in this in this world. And so these private Christian schools became safe havens for these white families to to send their children to avoid um, to avoid places where desegregation was happening. Mm. And the white Jesus religion of white supremacy still being invoked, although he said in different ways, uh, though out on the court, like the only good nigger is Martin Luther King. And you get an amen and laughter to that. Like, well, and this is in 1970, like, wow, that is make it plain. Uh, mm the color and that was in the New York Times like that's not even buried uh, the color uh, Kwaku did you have question for uh, Dr. J. Russell Hawkins yes, heard? wow your volume is way low if you could uh, speak up get louder maybe or get closer to your microphone raise your volume level maybe uh, is that better yes sir okay uh, thank you greetings to you guys and the guest, uh, my first question is: um, Are white people ignorant about racism, and white supremacy? I think that was asked a few times, but just for clarification. Are white people ignorant of white supremacy? Yes. Um. Some, not all. Okay. Um. Can you uh, can you tell? me the the intended audience of your book absolutely um i imagine two different audiences um one are uh, fellow historians um so a historian of the civil rights movement um one of the one of the newest kind of areas that have been kind of uh, unearthed in in recent years in the historiography of the civil rights movement is the white resistance to civil rights um, and so historians have increasingly in recent years been writing about what was driving the resistance to the civil rights movement. And so um, 
I was writing, part of my audience is, is, uh, is the historical community who's trying to better understand uh, the resistance, and I wanted to, to uh, help demonstrate the role that religion played in the resistance to the civil rights movement. So uh, part of my audience is, is other historians, the, the field. Um, my other audience um, that, that I had in mind was I was writing this book were, uh, were white Christians, uh, frankly, uh, white Christians who might be uh, interested in, um, in addressing um, this history that, uh, that in order to do so, I think we have to understand the depth of, of what we're talking about here. Uh, and so I had uh, those types of folks in mind, too, um, as, as my audience. supremacy or religion? Is that your question? Um, my question is, is it accurate to call white supremacy a religion? Yeah, I'd have to think about that. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't generally refer to white supremacy as a religion. Um, I'm not sure if you, if, if, if you're inferring, but you heard me say something tonight that that I would call it that. Um, so I'd have to no, I'd have I'm, to think on that some. Okay, because um, from what I what I'm observing, it it seems to operate kind of like a, a religion, and in your I'm, um, in your book, you know, uh, they they're using Christianity. Right as a religion, and they've kind of replaced it with white supremacy. Um, I see what you're saying. So yeah, the, the, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah. So thank you for for, for clarifying that for me. Um, yeah. So what I what I would be saying is that um, is that they're very comfortable with a Christianity that has no problem with white supremacy. Um, and see that as, as part of their interpretation of Christianity. Um, so I'm not sure if, if white supremacy itself then becomes a standalone religion or if it's just a, a part of the, their interpretation of Christianity that they're very comfortable with, uh, quite comfortable with. Um, but um, but I, I don't know about white supremacy itself being being a, a, a religion that they're worshiping. I think it's just something that is uh, that is certainly part of their understanding of the way that the world operates and um, something that they're willing to defend um, and see their, it's necessary to defend as part of their faith. I see. Okay, thank you. Um, my last question, because um, this came up quite a bit, and this is something that I've thought about for a long time. Um, it's if I, I've always wondered like, if white people are because they always talk about, you know, race, race mixing and uh, black people coming to rape us. Um, I, I've just always wondered if they're, if they're so afraid and concerned with race mixing, why do they continue to rape non-white people? You know, um, continue to rape. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I think that's that's the million dollar question and, and something to you know Gus's point earlier tonight. Um, you know, when you're having that conversation about um, the reestablishment of a patriarchy after the abolishment of slavery in this country, um, there was certainly it was a, uh, a a reestablishment that went one way, uh, and so this this race mixing that everyone's uh talking about being afraid of certainly doesn't take into account the fact that white men are raping um black women and black men as Gus pointed out earlier tonight with impunity during the same period so um why that is um your guess there uh, is as good as mine um uh I, I i can't speak intelligently to uh to the complexity of humans uh, and their ability to uh, self-deceive and to compartmentalize and to say one thing while they're doing something else. Um, I think that's part of what it means to be human. Okay. Um, Said that was your last question, sir. Uh, I'm going to nab one of our other folks really quick. Uh, Bay Area Mom, did you have a question for Dr. Jay Russell Hawkins, Bay Area Mom. Thank you for taking my call. Um, greetings to you, and everyone on the line. My question for you, sir, is do you think, just from what you've written and what you've um, observed and researched, there's the teachers, particularly white, teachers, in particular white women teachers, do you think they still um, treat the black males as if they're um, prospecting rapists, uh, particularly in elementary school? That's my question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the question. Um, why I Again, don't know that I can speak about um, how white female teachers uh, perceive um, black students in regard to uh, potential rapists. I can't say there's a there's a belly of study, studies that have come out, continue to come out that um, that that uh, teachers uh, continue to single out young black men as potential. Uh, problems um and uh uh um uh behavioral uh, problems and uh are more attuned to their to their discipline and discipline them harsher and give them harsher penalties i mean there's there's a there's a mountain of research about that um as it pertains to precisely the issue of race rape um i'm i don't i don't know i don't i don't have any idea about that i'm sorry Much obliged, our Bay Area mom. Uh, to get our last caller, five six four zero five six four zero. Did you have a question for Doctor J. Russell Hawkins? Hi, hello. Yes, ma'am. Oh, hi, uh, Gus and Doctor Hawkins. Thank you. Um, I have a question. So, um, why is it? I mean, given South Carolina's history of of uh, white deeply rooted racism against blacks um why is it do you think that 
the whites in South, South Carolina elected to have the Negro spirituals as the state music. I just find that ironic. Yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, I uh, I think that that this might go back to an answer I gave a, a few questions ago, but um, I don't I don't know that um, that we humans are always uh, uh, consistent in our actions. So um, I, I I I don't know the answer to that question, um, except to say that that sometimes. Uh, our actions don't match um, our beliefs, and our beliefs don't match exactly uh, what we profess to be our actions. So um, I, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I, I just find it interesting because I see how whites love black American-created blues music. They they love our Negro spirituals, our R&B, jazz, but then they hate us as human beings. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Much obliged. Much obliged. Did have the interviews and talks that you've done uh, about your book, Doctor Hawkins? Have other people brought that up? Like, hey, uh, it should be included. Strom Thurmond, uh, him raping his fifteen-year-old house servant. Have other people brought that up when they talk to you? No, Gus, you're the, you're, you've been the first to bring that up. Hmm. All righty. Uh, the book that we have been chatting about, uh, The Bible Told Them So, How Southern Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy. Uh, I think it makes it pretty clear, religion of whites. I guess if you give it some thought and ponder on that one, uh, we'll we'll check back in to see if you come to a conclusion. But I think that that is super accurate, uh, that this is just the religion of white supremacy. Sometimes they will grab a Christian scripture or crucifix or some other uh, accoutrement that is associated with Christianity or whatever else but this is really just about the religion of white supremacy racism but it has been a hoot uh, Dr. J. Russell Hawkins thank you so much for sharing some of your Tuesday evening with us enjoyed the book uh, enjoyed the dialogue and uh, yeah we'll be looking for more scholarship in the future dealing with the problem white supremacy racism thanks for having me Gus thank you so much we'll talk sir alright have a good night thank you you too context of white supremacy much obliged to our investor who uh, let me know about Dr. Hawkins' book. Uh, he was on Dr. Gerald Horn's program, who's also been a guest on our program a number of times. Uh, he was on his program earlier this year. book just came out. hadn't even been out a full year yet. Uh, he was on his program, and one of our investors heard him was like, oh, you should get this guy on the program. should be interesting. Um, I listened to the interview. I can post it if folks want to hear it, but I listened to the interview with Dr. Horn. Dr. Horn did not ask him about Strom Thurmond um, having this sexual uh, raping uh, 15-year-old Carrie Butler. Uh, Interestingly, Dr. Horn should be back on the program with us later this month to discuss his book Race War uh, about World War II. Tojo is mentioned in that book repeatedly. Uh, Now I got to put that question in there too. Like, did you know? Because, I mean, he's eminent scholar. Did you know about Strom Thurmond and Carrie Butler? And if so, 
did you think that was relevant to the book to see uh, what he says anywho uh, we'll check it with some of the folks the book the next book for the cows book club Thursdays 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific we're supposed to be moving on moving on to a new book I have decided over the weekend we should read the Palm Beach murder Marion Collins I was excited to read this book weeks ago cowbell there as well uh, it's about uh, the murder of Lita McClinton we never do like true crime I don't I think this would be like the first time ever that we've done like a true crime book on the cows unless you count like OJ Simpson I guess if that counts that we've done true crime before OJ Simpson and uh, maybe Geronimo Pratt I guess if that one counts that's kind of in the the true crime vein a little bit maybe if those count anyway I was intrigued by this because um, she was on Unsolved Mysteries which has been mentioned a few times this year on the cows for whatever all related to racism but they did a report on her murder on Unsolved Mysteries and many of those different true crime like um, series America's Most Wanted and they even did one like a couple days ago on uh, the Oxygen Network a whole hour special on Lita McClinton and I was taken with her story because she marries a white man an older white man, even greater age difference than Strom Thurmond and Carrie Butler. But she marries this older white man and then he ends up killing her. And that's the whole book is, you know, her parents trying to pursue justice for their murdered daughter, Lita McClinton. So I was all excited to read this book. I didn't even know about this case. She was uh, born in Atlanta. And I'm like, oh, man, like I should have, you know, known about this. Like, man. Essie Mae Washington Williams, dear Senator, I've been looking at this book for like years uh, and I think she might even have connections to the Seattle area. I think she's passed away now, but I have both books. There's no audio book to either. If there was an unabridged audio book, then that would probably make this a, a slam dunk decision as to which we're going to do next. Uh, but I'm undecided after today's program. Now I'm back on the fence like, oh, maybe we should read this book um, because I just gusty does not accept that I'm an ignorant black male. I don't have a budget for the cows. We don't have staff. We don't have research assistance. We don't have people that go out and, you know, do uh, put together little dossiers for me of all of our guests and little cliff notes and things of their book. I have to read the book myself and take my own notes and what have you. I didn't have a staff of people to go and read S.E. May Washington Williams book and give me a nice little passage that I could read on the air uh, in the acknowledgments. Dr. J. Russell Hawkins, he talks about different grants and funding help that he got to do his research. We don't have institutions donating, investing. We are listener supported and have been for 13 years now you're telling me nobody grasps hey you can't exactly write a book about Strom Thurmond and have all of this talk about raping Strom Thurmond and, or excuse me about well that is accurate but all this talk about raping black males and Strom Thurmond you gotta do something and prevent the mongrelization of the white race and prevent us from being absorbed into the negros and are you gonna let these negro bus drivers have our little girls on the bus in the morning in the dark and all this and not include Strom Thurmond is a child rapist are you telling me that that many people so few people know about that if that's the case, that is an indictment 
of white people because they do this consistently they write books and they'll talk about these people and omit pertinent details and I totally reject if S.E. Mae Washington Williams name is on the statue then people know about this if you know about this arrangement then you know it's rape I wouldn't care if they were the same age in a system of white supremacy you got some white man who goes on to be a U.S. senator could have been U.S. president and he's having sexual intercourse with the maid of the house and you're going to tell me that this is some sort of correct arrangement get out of here and white people consistently they deliberately conceal this sort of information so that we don't think of Strom Thurmond Thomas Jefferson these guys are ra child rapists not even pedophile make it plain don't call a spade a spade call a pedophile a child rapist they're child rapists if it was Harvey Gant at Clemson and he had a 15 year old white side piece white people would lose their mind it would be exactly what they said in the book we are going to lynch Harvey Gant or worse cut his thing off keep his fingers in a mason jar Anywho, you all can let me know if you believe that and or if you, you know, grasp the importance of that. That's why I said we need to read S.E. May Washington Williams, Dear Senator, uh, because that is disgraceful. Like I was waiting for it. Like maybe I'm not going to get a chance to bring this up. Maybe he'll, you know, he will include that. Oh, yeah. Strom Thurmond was, you know, creeping in the bushes, all of that. And not even in the footnotes. Like, are you serious? Anyway, uh, one thing I will say, since I did ask him and he said that out of all the interviews that he's done, the book been almost been out almost a year that no one else brought this up uh, about Strom Thurmond being a child rapist as it relates to talking to these white people about their books and racism, white supremacy. This isn't even anything to brag about. I view it as being extraordinarily unfortunate because it's just like, wow, we are really pitiful and lame. But as it relates to talking to white people about books they have written on racism, white supremacy, apparently, even after 13 years, it is gusty motherfucking renegade and everybody else. Nothing to brag about. Just wow. We are in a really pitiful position. 13 years context of white supremacy. Did folks have commentary? They wanted to share what they heard. Dr. J. Russell Hawkins, Star 6-1, new switchboard and everything for the day. Let's see. We'll even try being Santa Rosa one more time. Sorry, your microphone was not working. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, my microphone, my phone was being so weird today. I had a weird day. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask him a question about um, how white people put who they are on us by uh, connecting uh, the fact that that uh, that guy was raping that black woman, but at the same time they always talk about we are the rapists and see if he had any connections between that. 
it has been that sort of year uh be in Santa Rosa uh and just tech issues strife um also I thought that was important uh just that whole you know point of view I wish you'd been able to get in and get your question but I thought that was extremely important and I just don't think that that's believable I mean I guess you could say maybe he didn't read it I'm certainly not saying that every white person you know has read every book and knows every bit of data you know available but I mean really you have a P I don't have a doctorate you have a doctorate you teach classes you got a budget to research and put this book together and you have staff you had help with this project so that means also that all of the whites with doctorates and all of their expertise and all of the books that they brag about reading that none of them also considered this and thought it was important to include a sentence I don't believe that I think white people practice racism white supremacy and like I said that's the pattern they do the same thing with Thomas Jefferson all of these are the same thing child rape call things by their proper name if it was OJ Simpson and he was hooking up with Sally Hemings when she was 14 Carrie Butler at 15 they would be ready to castrate somebody and they would call it what it is child rape is that believe one you all can make sure y'all do that anyway but am I talking crazy being Santa Rosa and do you believe that that you know he all the white people that edited his book and all these folks that all of them are just ignorant that Gus T is more informed about Strom Thurmond than they uh, man I, I, I don't believe it man I believe that they knew exactly what was going on and they purposely left that out he was very invasive too some of the questions you didn't have an answer to and you got a PhD no, I don't smoke a bag of that, man. Metaphors, metaphors. Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> just pointing out the metaphors. Uh, other folks, questions, thoughts to share. Star six one. If you need to put a hand up, may I be heard? Uh, 2262. Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus. Um, I just wanted to point out um, Dr. Hawkins, in my opinion, was practicing white supremacy when he feigned and acted like he didn't know what white people are truly afraid of, and that is the fear of white and annihilation. He him hauled and beat around the bush and didn't want to answer directly. And in my opinion, his responses um, were just Again, lackluster and lit. Um, and again, uh, kudos to you, Gus. And again, yes, you can definitely um, uh, pat yourself on the back. That's a medical. Pat yourself on the back for all the work you're doing. Again, pitiful from where we are. Like, wow, lots more work to be done. Um, yeah, I just don't believe that with he, anybody else. Like, it's just, uh, I mean, you know about Essie Mae Washington. Why not even read her book? Like, my goodness, she's been on C-SPAN and whatnot. It's not like she's some uh, Negro of irrepute. Well, she is a Negro, so. Uh, but, I mean, she's not Gusty Renegade, you know. She's been on C-SPAN repeatedly, uh, in fact. What does she have to say about Strom Thurmond? Is that something that should be included in all this? She certainly pointed out the hypocrisy. That's why I said I got to make sure I include something because she pointed that out. Like for him to be up here, all this filibustering and stay away from the nigra. And then on my 15 year old 
mother. That's the same thing with Richard uh, and Mildred Loving that they brag about all the time when that whole tacky affair started. Richard is 17 and she's 11. Same thing. If that was switched around, if it was 17 year old Orenthal James, Anthony Broadwater and an 11 year old white girl. Where are my penis trimmers? Other folks comments that they need to make sure if they get in questions what they heard. Our color five six four zero. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So um, even though it's publicly acknowledged that, uh, like on sites like Wikipedia, that uh, Thomas Jefferson um, fathered, I believe, at least six children with Sally Hemings. I believe um, none of her offspring with him are even buried at his uh, site in uh, at Monticello in Virginia. So I just wanted to bring up that fact. I thought of that when um, it was meant when I think you mentioned, Gus, that S.E. May uh, Washington's name was had been recently added to the pedestal there um, of the uh, statue of Strom Thurmond. And from what I understand, S.E. May Washington is not the only quote-unquote, mixed-race child of um, Strom. I believe, from what I understand, he had several um, other, quote-unquote, mixed-race children from other black women that he, I'm sure, raped. So I just wanted to bring that fact along. Thanks. Number one, uh, do not be coming on here and bad-mouthing my alma mater, uh, the University of Virginia. Uh, two, um, I mean, she's the person that I read from Essie Mae Washington Williams biography, autobiography, excuse me. Um, she talked about his philandering. You heard, she said she's a ladies man. In fact, she said the whole family is, can you imagine that? Like, just pause for a minute. Like everybody, can you imagine you're 15 years old? an entire house of grown white men are flirting with you. And it's 1955. You say no, you could be killed. This is what I mean. Like it's rape beyond, but I mean, you say no, you could be killed. I think at this point uh, that they're talking about in 1955, I'm not even sure if Emmett Till had been killed yet. Another black rapist. I have to look at the dates to match him up because this happened so early. He might have still, you know, been alive to do some raping himself. Let's see. Because this happened early. Let's see. Oh, this is early night. Yep. Emmett Till would have still been alive to wolf whistle at white women and all that. But yeah, I mean, I, I totally believe that. I haven't done the research on it, but I mean, just that she this is not like a one-time thing this is generational 
So I'm sure that's his side piece right there, Essie Mae Washington Williams, and he, you know, picked up he was gonna be president. And I'm not surprised even though, yes, that is my alma mater. I am not surprised at all that none of Sally Hemings descendants uh got to hang out at Monticello. They just even while I was there, they put up like I mean, you wanna talk about tacky? It was about let me think. maybe like the dimensions of a normal like sheet of notebook paper like a plaque may and I mean maybe a tad larger than that just like oh this is where the the slave quarters were we pick out our best winches for raping and best niggers for raping too you know uh, but it was a little bit bigger than a piece of paper we'll say we'll, we'll double we'll say the size of like two pieces of paper niggers were here much less this is rape like make it plain don't just put some tackiness up and oh you know we had children Sally he raped Sally Hemings and produced offspring with her uh, the slave coast uh, Ned and Constant Sublet we talked about that in detail uh, we talked about Monticello specifically and how Thomas Jefferson in fact said one of the great errors of the slave plantation is not raping black female slaves you got to maximize your money you got to make them produce those offspring we need more of those little se may washington williams those little half breeds because then hey i got a hankering from the what did i say sally hemmings is thomas jefferson's half sister so i mean <laughs> tell it correctly be accurate this is not a love story this is child rape that's what white supremacy racism is about exploitation not separation and then we lie about it we can't even be true we can't even acknowledge it's been what 200 years Sally Hemings and all that we can't be truthful about that now I mean everybody what's the statute of limitations on your side piece when you can you know be truthful about all that this isn't even a side piece that's glorifying it What's the statute of limitations on rape and being truthful about that? Child rape at that. If we want to be serious about replacing white supremacy with justice, stop saying white people are ignorant about all of their raping white ancestors. Dear Senator, if I had to take a wager, whew, easily, way more white people read that book, S.E. May Washington Williams, Dear Senator, than non-white people. If I had to take a bet, way more. All I need to do is go start looking at some of the talks and see who's sitting. Anybody here read uh, Dear Senator? Anybody here? That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Reading is more important than watching television anyone here even heard of the book dear senator before today nope yes i had heard of it love it thank you okay reading is more important than watching television when that sort of thing is why dr welsing 
people on this program specifically asked her, like, do you have one specific book that you think, you know, we should read your book or, you know, whatever else? And she said, no, read them all. Read as much as you can. She had a humongous library and was accumulating books up until she passed away. Read, 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 because white people lie about so many things. If you don't read, you will miss the more you read, the more information you will have to catch when they are lying about things. And sometimes omission It's not that they necessarily said something that is inaccurate or untruthful. It's that they will have left out important information like, oh, yeah, by the way, Strom Thurmond is a child rapist. Even the way he responded to that, like he had just said, if you listen to it, like go back and slow it down. He conceded before Essie Mae Washington Williams was mentioned child rape. Oh, yeah. Strom Thurmond is important to this book. Central character does all the introducing of these people and people are writing to him about their concerns and filibusters. Total concession. Important character. As soon as the is his rape important to all of this? Oh, wait a minute. He's not even a central character. what it means to be white omission lying 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 that should have been one of the first things mentioned uh, in my opinion because it's such a central theme in the book how many times raping black males comes up anywho uh, I had made a decision that we were going to read Marion Collins The Palm Beach Murders because I'm super excited to read that book I didn't even know about Lita McClinton which is the same thing raping white men uh, but now I'm undecided again. I've wanted to read Dear Senator for a long time. I should have read it by now. I feel guilty. Uh, but S.E. May Washington Williams, I have both books. I'll have to give it more thought. Um, I have to give it more thought. If anybody can find out, maybe that'll help my decision. I don't know if... Uh, uh, Marion Collins is a white person or a non-white person I guess that might weigh the de decision because I'm struggling uh, I might be tempted to read uh, Dear Senator if it turns out Marion Collins is a white person but I'm not sure people would have to uh, yeah if anybody wants a research project if you can find out the Marion Collins who wrote the Palm Beach murder she seems to do a lot of crime books true crime type books if you can find out this person is classified as white or non-white and drop me an email or so until justice at gmail.com much obliged any other comments folks want to get in observations things that they heard from dr uh, j russell how white guests only any other thoughts We'll assume folks are. Yes, we'll assume folks are satisfied. Much obliged for your uh, participation. Seeing the switchboard worked out without too much, too many hiccups, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the new fancy look and everything. We'll be here for Thursday. Um, I don't know which book. It'll be one of those two, I guess. I I already have it posted. Like I would hate to have to go and change it, but I'd be willing to do it for. Uh, dear Senator, because uh, I think it's important. Um, 
I have to think about it. I'm not sure. I'll think about it and let folks know it's posted right now. So if I remain indecisive, I'll just stick with what's up and we'll do Palm Beach murders gleefully. If I change my mind, we'll do Dear Senator and learn more about raping Strom Thurmond and his uh, siblings in South Carolina. Anywho, much obliged. Hope it was worth folks uh, time and energy for the program. Uh, let me look at my notes. Did I get in all my questions? Oh, America. That was one I was going to get. Uh, Dr. Hawkins was in AmeriCorps. I don't know if people remember they had the reports about AmeriCorps and how they don't do the best job at getting in black teachers like young academic. Uh, that was one uh, that I forgot to ask just because it was you know kind of not related to the book and it was just on his faculty page um, that he was in AmeriCorps. Anything uh, else? Oh, the South. He had in the book about racism being especially bad in the South and We've read a number of books, Cased by Isabel Wilkerson, Two Thumbs Down, uh, James Lowen, Sundown Towns, pretty constructed, but they both say, amongst others, uh, how white supremacy racism was worse uh, in the North. James Lowen, in fact, saying that there were way more sundown towns in the North than in the South. Uh, that was one I was going to bring up. And then ignorant black people. This becomes a major theme after the 70s when the rhetoric of colorblindness and it's not racism, white supremacy, it's black people are ignorant. And that's why we don't want to go to school with them. I just thought this was important because this also has been a huge theme throughout the history of white supremacy, racism, that Negroes are intellectually defective. Um, this is they're saying this in South Carolina and like waves of white people saying this, the dumb Negroes and dumb Negroes and bringing in scientists to talk about the size of the Negro brain, like phrenology type stuff in the 1970s. Uh, this is like 15 years before the bell curve is even published. People are familiar with the bell curve, like uh, bestseller, New York times bestseller, 1980s. One of the authors is already deceased, but basically a big, like, 700 page book saying that black people are, are ignorant and stupid same type of argument eugenics that they've made for eons that's why slavery is justified and you know all the rest of it but that was when I was going to bring up to you but other than that I got to all my questions I prioritized Strom Thurmond was most important child raping Strom Thurmond much obliged for folks joining us Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sorry about being Santa Rosa's be in Santa Rosa's uh, audio issues. Hopefully, be corrected next time. Uh, everybody's good. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need fully functioning brain computers to pick through all of the deception and trifling racist antics. Uh, narcotics are not going to help solve this problem in addition to being sober if you're out and about if you see someone being hostile and rowdy exit this is not a time for verbal confrontations with strangers you should be thinking he she they could be armed if you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and or die exit they might even have an entire armed entourage. Exit. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled, you are not 
on the cell phone. We need all of our attention, dangerous times, and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing up. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.